Ever felt in over your head? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to In Over Our Heads, the podcast that celebrates the wild ride that is working in the tech industry. I'm your host, Lee Centino, co-founder and director of Innova Recruitment. And in each episode, I'll be deep diving into the triumphs, the tribulations, and the moments when tech titans felt completely in over their heads. Get ready for candid conversations, actionable insights, and maybe, if you're lucky, a little bit of laughter too. I am delighted today to be joined by Alex Wiley, a really impressive individual who has risen the ranks all the way to head of product level. And not only that, but he's done it uh, by the age of 26 as well. How are you doing today, Alex? Yeah, really good. Thank you, Lee. How about yourself? Yeah, very good, very good. As I said, very kind of pleased you've uh, very pleased you've joined us today. Um, as I said, want to say thanks very much for coming on the In Over Our Heads podcast. And I was really keen to get your perspective on a well a number of areas, really, including how you've achieved such rapid progression, some of the hurdles that you've naturally had to face in your role, and also the different paths that one can potentially take, even when they've got into that leadership position that some may consider the end goal, if you will. Um, most recently working for one-up sales and in a moment I'll let you give the audience a better understanding of exactly who one-up are what they do and what your role has been there but um, it's a really interesting scenario this really because uh, you've actually made the massive decision to move on from your current role and take I guess what we'd call a kind of a sabbatical for a few months and and go traveling yeah yeah absolutely it's uh I've described it to other people as the hardest decision of my life. And that sounds really dramatic when you, when you put it like that. But maybe I'd definitely say the hardest decision of my professional life. Um, as I'll go into with one, I think when you've spent five years, it will be at somewhere and you've seen it go from this tiny little thing that you can just about call a company all the way up to this thing, which is actually supporting quite a lot of people uh, and generating a lot of revenue. You have a lot of attachment to that. Um, so making that decision to optimized for a different part of my life that's been it's been super tough but uh, I've not regretted it very brave very bold decision but you've got to have courage in your conviction right and you know what's the right decision for you and obviously there's another 40 plus years of, of your career left I guess as well so lots of time to be doing more interesting things and obviously we'll take some time in a minute to look at what you have done over the last five plus years and um, from knowing you Alex I it's fair to say you're a very honest person, so I think this is going to be an illuminating discussion for, for everybody. So let's get into it. For those that don't know who you are, could you give us a bit of a background on yourself, please? Yeah, for sure. Um, honest is the key word there. I think some some would call it candid, other would call it HR risk. <laughs> we, <laughs> we span across all of those. But yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess it's, it's probably best to frame it uh, in terms of, you know, from my very early childhood up to where I am now. And I'll, I'll try and be sort of brief and not go off on too many tangents. So, you know, I'd say as a child, um, I don't know if difficult is the right word, but I think I was a bit difficult to parents, to be honest. So if my mom listens to this, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> ultimately, I never wanted to accept the way that things were. I always challenged stuff and I always really wanted to understand why certain things were the way they were. Um, Luckily, I came from a household where my parents were very accepting of that. Um, you know, they were open to sort of like championing the way in which I wanted to do things and, and really let me explore. But I think looking back at my childhood, I have quite vivid memories of of really just tinkering with stuff. 
especially on the digital and the tech side, always just experimenting. Um, a really funny story is actually, I remember, must have been around 10, maybe 10 or 11. And it was at the time where obviously the internet was becoming far bigger of a thing, way more than it is today. And, you know, kids were starting to get exposed to it. And I'd just become obsessed, whether it be playing Call of Duty, whether it had been, you know, uh, you know, messing around online or something like that. And they ended up installing, we had a BT router at the time, they ended up installing this family protection suite, which essentially locked it in between certain hours. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't access it past that time. Yeah. Um, I promptly hacked my way around that. Which BT told my parents was not possible. And I was there like, well, I've done it. So <laughs> I hacked my way around that. But really, whatever it was, whether it was hacking my way around the internet or, you know, creating a Minecraft server when I was like 12 or something or hacking my PS3, it was anything. It was just anything technical. I just loved that challenge um, and really overcoming it. And then kind of moving more into sort of like my teenage years. I really just started experimenting with design. I just got really latched onto this idea of not like drawing. God Almighty, my, my art teacher didn't actually allow me to do GCSE art, so I definitely can't draw. But um, more around sort of like the way in which websites are de- designed, put together, how the information's presented. And it was a hobby at first. I didn't know how to code. Um, it was a hobby. And I used this tool, which is now obsolete, which tells you it was a while ago, called Adobe Muse. Um, and that was basically just a visual drag and drop editor. Um, and yeah, that really like ignited that passion, uh, for really, you know, exploring with design and getting into tech. I ultimately, uh, fun little tangent here, ended up using this plugin library called Muse Themes. Uh, and I think this was when I was about 15. And essentially this just added a load of common website things that you might want to do, like accordions and stuff like that. I added it to Adobe Muse that didn't have that functionality. And I became such an expert in using it that I just ended up contributing on their forum. Um, and one day I just thought, you know what, sod it, I'm going to mess with the CEO. And I ended up getting a job there for this Canadian widget design company um, and wow. ended up at the age of 15, just <laughs> like moderating a forum online and providing support. I think within a year, um, I managed to go from like being a support person up to a, a widget developer. Uh, so that was a bit of a crazy ride. Um, and yeah, ultimately, actually got let go of that job because uh, I didn't manage to balance the time with my A-levels that well. Um, but yeah, that really led me up to that moment in life where I eventually, um, you know, went off to university, really solidified that area of, of, you know, that sort of career of understanding tech from a much more sort of like competent level, understanding how to code and understanding ultimately how technology websites worked. And then, yeah, that's kind of like led me to where I am today. Um, along that journey, I've done a lot of di- different things, such as I've built businesses, which haven't really been that successful, more passion businesses. But, you know, just a load of that formative experience of just experimenting and trying stuff, which has really led me to sitting in the seat that I'm in today. Amazing. And I guess if anything is a, you know, a kind of a signifier for the world of product it is that idea of, you know, try a bunch of things some will work some won't some might fly and become something huge some become those uh stories that you just tell about you know on moments like today or just with your mates kind of later on i guess i also want to know did you tell all your mates how to hack the safe search kind of feature (laughs) uh the parental controls were you the most popular kid in school as a result 
You know what? That's that's a uh, that could have been a revenue stream that I didn't explore. <laughs> I never asked. I just assumed that no other parent would do that. <laughs> Maybe I should have asked. No, I didn't. I didn't end up uh, telling anyone else how to do it. But if I could go back in time, I guess that's my answer to what would I uh, what would I change about the past? <laughs> absolutely, <that>. absolutely. <laughs> um, excellent, excellent. So as you said, then so we first class degree in computer science, if I'm right there. Yeah, that's correct. Not not to boast, but I was actually the second highest in the year. So that's kind of like my claim to fame, because to be completely honest, a- academically, I never shone. Um, I wasn't sort of like the high fly. You know, you hear of kids who go to school, they get, you know, 12 A stars at GCSE and they've basically not done any revision. Absolutely was not the case for me. I was actually in third set for quite a few things and, you know, really quite a quite a difficult time, really, because I was surrounded by a lot of people who were you know, that sort of type of person where they just excelled. But I think university for me was where I was like, I found my interest. I know what I want to do. And I really pushed beyond just that minimum level they require. I really went to the nth degree um, to, you know, secure that grade. So whilst I'll boast about it, it was only due to a lot of hard work and a lot of late evenings sat at a keyboard. Of course, of course. And and fair play. And again, that's a really interesting story because, you know, I find fascinating the roots into tech. You know, when I started uh, recruitment, what, 2014, best part of 10 years ago, even then it felt like there was a singular route into technology. It was, you had to have done a computer science degree. You had to have incredible grades and this real proclivity for maths and science and things like that. And that was the natural route that people went into. Whereas now there's so many different routes, so many different diversity of thought, diversity of experiences, diversities of showing that academic grades in the, obviously you had amazing academic grades at university, but perhaps not earlier on, doesn't actually change anything, you know, and yeah. then everyone can start wherever and tech should be accessible to all as well, you know, within that. Yeah, I completely agree. It was, uh, it's quite interesting you say that because um, back when I was at university and even a bit beyond that, I, for a while, interned and then later worked at a company called School of Code, which is pretty much exactly what you've just been saying there, Lee. So they take people from all different sorts of backgrounds. They bring them onto a 16-week boot camp and they essentially teach them how to code. They go from zero to one and get them a job. And, you know, we saw people who had worked in government, in uh, education, in a bunch of different backgrounds And actually, what was really, really beautiful about that was whilst they may not bring the pure technical skills, you know, they've not been doing this since they were 12. They're not been hacking the BT Wi-Fi since they were 12. What they actually bring to the table is a much wider diversity of thought to the equation, because you get people who have come from education. They can bring a very different stance on how they might approach something or politics or, you know, finance or whatever it might be. So really interesting seeing that diversity be nurtured through boot camps like that. So massively up for, you know, having a lot more uh, wider variety of backgrounds coming into tech. I think it's ultimately a good thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we try and push that envelope as well. And, you know, as you know, the, the majority of the recruitment that we do can often be in that kind of mid to senior space, but we'll often make a lot of introductions for people more at a junior level. And a lot of the feedback that we've had for those, you know, who have been, boot camp plus a year or whatever it may be has been such yeah it's kind of really really positive you know and that's people who've come from being a bookkeeper where you might think well there's no natural link there but actually 
skills can be learned. And, you know, I think if as a society we had more of this without kind of getting too deep and too kind of grandiose about it, but more this acceptance that anyone can do anything if you kind of give them time and mentorship and, you know, the ability to, to flourish, you know, there are so many more routes and for an industry that has a huge, you know, kind of uh, skills gap. I think we just yeah we need to be more accepting and I'll I'll bang that drum for people even if it doesn't help us directly as a business I think you know they're your future seniors your future engineering managers and and so on and so forth as well yeah and I think what you said there is actually really key to it it's skills people apply a uh, a bee mentality um, a lot of times to life they think that uh, as worker bees you know you you're kind of like assigned a job like you know everyone's seen that classic movie B movie if you've not go and watch it it's fantastic but you know, it. you're either yeah it's fantastic one of my favorites actually but it's either like you know you either the the things that went around with the little like uh fingers on their head to like scoop up sort of like the dripping honey out of the thing or maybe you're a producer whatever it might be they have that job and they die and that's not the same with people but what is constant with people is what i like to call their why their passion in life and you use the example there of, of a bookkeeper right if you're really passionate about literature and you want to sort of like, you know, really solidify that for future generations to come, then you've got your why. You just need to learn how to build the skills around yourself in order to bring that vision and that sort of like purpose to life. So, you know, you could have someone coming from a background of being a bookkeeper who actually builds the next big reading app or something like that. And that's one of the things I love about tech so much is you can essentially think, what are my interests? What do I love? Great. There's a company in the world that needs someone in a technical capacity to solve that. So it really unlocks the doors to anywhere in the world. Yeah, completely agree. And good to hear we're, you know, on, on the same page with that. You know, it's a fascinating industry. It's the industry that's going to change the momentum of everything moving forward. And um, I guess to, to bring us back from the, the kind of the tangent of kind of boot camping and entries into tech, you know, so that, that's your story and we've got to where we are now, which, which is amazing. I guess um, about your business. So the last best part of five years have been consumed with you, both from a technical level and then a kind of a product level at OneUp. Um, for those who aren't, you know, kind of uh, familiar with, with OneUp sales, what do they do? What are they about? What's, this, what's their story? Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll go with a high level mission because that's what we all like to, to lead yeah. with. They're essentially on a mission to help recruitment companies take control of performance. Obviously, that take control word can be a bit scary, but it's really around allowing companies to not only understand performance, but drive it. So many companies are driving blind when it comes to performance. They just think, oh, we'll whack a sales incentive in or oh, we'll put a leaderboard on a whiteboard. Job done. It turns out that is not the case. And really, this can be approached exactly like a science. The tricky bit is it takes a lot of skill to get that data, put it on a spreadsheet, work it out, then drive the right activity around it. So it's just complicated. And that is where OneUp was born. So we're in the task business, um, specifically in the sales performance management space. Um, and like I said, we're currently serving recruitment companies. But really, the vision there is to go far beyond recruitment. Really, any business that has a sales function, we can help. We've just honed it on recruitment to start with because, quite honestly, it's just been easy pickings. We've received really good feedback from the recruitment market, generated a lot of revenue. And next step over the next couple of years will be to move into different verticals. 
Amazing, amazing. And, you know, you're you kind of preaching to the, the, the converted here because, you know, I know from setting up an agency here when we've done everything quite manually and looking at Excel spreadsheets or whatever it may be, it can be really hard to, and time consuming, I think is the other thing, particularly for business owners, business leaders, where time is so stretched already with a job that is outside of your typical nine to five constraints. I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, an industry or that kind of visualization and reporting and incentivization is, is ripe for innovation and, and fair play to uh, Derry and the team at one up for you know creating that and, and kind of unsurprisingly it's it's flourished more recently yeah 100 percent good good and um, I guess you know a lot of people will listening to this will be very aware of what we're talking about when we're saying product management throughout the majority of, of, of this podcast. But for those that don't know, could you give us a bit of a breakdown of what we actually mean when we say product? Because people can think, oh, physical, something you can hold. And, and that's not what we're talking about necessarily at all in, in your case, is it? Yeah, no, completely not. I mean, product takes many forms. And to be completely honest, in my experience, even people who say they know what product is don't always understand what product is. I think the definition of product can change based on your industry, your company size, and how highly the founders regard product to be. So the, the best sort of like explanation of product that I've personally heard is if you've got product owning the why and the what, engineering owns the how. And that's the best way to distinguish it. Nice. In terms of product, we essentially, you know, really look at, okay, looking at our company, what is our goal? What's our mission that we're trying to achieve? Okay, now we know that. What are our, ambi our ambitions? What are the objectives that we're looking at? And then who is our customer? What are their needs? What is their critical problem that they're trying to solve? We then work as product to essentially align sales, marketing, customer success, engineering. We unite them all under one coherent strategy and drive ultimately customer value and, of course, shareholder value as well. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and yeah, this is what I've undertaken or understood rather from a lot of my experience of granted, I'm not a product manager, but we supply into that product management space across uh, various industries and such. And I guess as companies have changed their internal structures to being more product aligned, a little more agile, it's it's perhaps the natural evolution for some people from you know what we'd call project management, but instead of having a wide breadth of projects that they might look after, such as a typical software development feature and then an infrastructure feature, some telephony or whatever it may be. It's much more as a depth over breadth. Is that the kind of a fair summation? Yeah, I'd say so. But I'd say there's kind of a layer deeper to that. And, and project management versus product management is a hotly contested uh, topic. The way that I would kind of distill this is by its nature, a project has to have a start and an end. You you have to. And then you plan for that. You've got your fancy Gantt charts out. You're having your shareholder, stakeholder meetings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not what building product is about. Product doesn't have a start and an end. Product has a goal. And normally that goal can be tracked. So let's take it super simple, right? You're a social media company and you want to drive daily active users right because that's that's where you know you're going to get your money from the more users we have using it daily the more revenue we're going to get from ads etc etc now you can't have a start and an end to that 
you just have to keep doing it. You have to keep pushing towards that goal and you have to keep experimenting with different ways, whether it be a new algorithm or a new feature which increases engagement. It doesn't really matter what it is. And that's actually the essence of what I try to get to when I'm talking to people about products. The solution is irrelevant, not in the grand scheme of things, but when you're thinking about products, where people fall into, and I'm sure many of the listeners will have heard it before, but where people fall into a feature trap is they think of it as specific features with a start and an end date. You ship that, you move on. And I have been completely guilty of that for, if I'm honest, most of my career. And I think most people are. And I think what it takes is a very good understanding of that anti-patterning product and also quite a big education within a company and its culture to really drive a product culture because it is weird people are used to deadlines people are used to start and end dates and actually when you say look guys you've got to let go of the start and end date and you've actually got to just focus on this number they have a little freak out because they're like well i want to know when it's going to be shipped and whilst you can still give that information there are ways to go about doing that um i think this is where the biggest miscommunication comes about product it's not about shipping to it an end date and then you move on it's about continuous iteration lovely look really, really well put i think one of my favorite stories i remember reading kind of way back when was um about reddit so i think when they started launched what 2005 ish had zero zero visitors and we all know that products without users is nothing it's it's an idea isn't it it's uh you know it's it's a bit of blue sky thinking so they decided that the only kind of way that they were really going to drive engagement was ultimately to create fake accounts fake profiles fake discussions and then it became a forum that people were using and naturally it kind of snowballed from there and you know i think they've got you know, kind of a billion plus kind of monthly users. It's it's the forum of the earth, you know, essentially. And for a good period, when they'd created what they thought was this this brilliant project uh, product, rather, no one was using it, and and therefore there could be no revenue, there could be no iteration as a result. Because if you don't have anything, you uh, it's over, isn't it? So. I guess, do you think, you know, within products there can sometimes be a kind of fake it till you make it approach? Or is that just one particular example that's outside the, the, the kind of norm? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fake it till you make it, it's probably, there's, it's, you can look at it on two different uh, sort of vertices, right? You've got the personal fake it till you make it, you've got the business fake it till you make it. I think really everyone's faking it until they make it. I think if you talk to even really experienced leaders, they're still faking it till they make it. And that's because ultimately, what is making it? Okay, well, it's getting to a milestone. But the funny thing about milestones is there's always one after it and one after it. I go to head of products, maybe my next role, I go to VP of product, then CPO. There's always an element of faking that next step. And actually, the beautiful thing about that is, you only realize how much you know when you actually step back and say, right, I'm going to pause a minute and just truly reflect. And actually, whilst, yeah, you might be faking it, you've done a lot of stuff right along the way and a lot of stuff wrong, but that's just part of personal growth. Absolutely. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. And I guess, you know, you, you've come from the startup world and, and, and myself now, I've worked in corporates, worked in a, a startup from a recruitment standpoint, this is, and then, you know, me and my business partner set up our own agency as well. From my experience, I, I think it's fair to say, whilst product lives in all industries, businesses of all size, 
it seems to be so well aligned with products. Uh, sorry, uh, products seem to be so well aligned with startups because they can bake those principles in or, or whatever it may be. I guess, why, why do you think that, that startups do so well with kind of getting product right and it's, it's product-led growth rather than trying to shoehorn perhaps a, a product culture into an existing uh, business? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if we kind of look at the history of, of business, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but I guess my hot take on this would be if you if you look back at companies that maybe existed towards, you know, the 1980s, 1970s, that's quite far back. But even if you step forward to maybe around the 2000 mark, product was actually around back then. A lot of people think that products and the methodologies that have come around in the last 10 years, they've not. Product has been going all the way back to 1960. Um, but I think really we've seen quite a seismic change in the last 20 years of companies adopting a very product first approach. Now, a lot of these incumbent companies um, have adopted that and, you know, they've been brought up around that. Like, you know, the, if you're starting a company today, the default manifesto is to say, right, we're going to employ agile for our software development. We're going to be product led, customer centric, plus another 50 buzzwords that come with it. But your older companies, you know, they might have people who've been working there for a long time. They've been set in their ways. They come from a time where things were waterfall. You know, your IBMs of the world, things just were more waterfall. And I will just note on that as well. I'm absolutely not saying that waterfall is a bad approach. I think a lot of people, they're like, oh, you use waterfall. It's good for certain things. Like if you are making a critical hospital system, probably best to do waterfall and not figure out you've killed someone after it's happened. But... <laughs> For a lot of the world Agreed. now, yeah, for a lot of the world now, you know, this is the default approach. And I think, to be honest, I think a lot of big companies, especially in the tech space, probably are getting it right now. Um, there's such a big difference between how large companies do products and how startups do products. And I think one of those biggest differences is really just the velocity they can move at. And that is even more complicated because it's not that big companies move slower than small companies. Actually, uh, you know, if you compare them, big companies actually probably move a lot faster because they have more resources to do things. But small companies can be a lot punchier. They can just ship something in a day. They don't need to go through three months of compliance and law and all of that sort of stuff. They can just put it out there and get feedback quicker. And I think that's probably why when you look at small companies, they feel more product-led in a sense than these larger companies. But I'd hedge my bets that for the majority, both of them are doing it just in at different scales. That's really, really interesting because I guess maybe then it comes down to the illusion, the the, the mirage of, of startups and not having that kind of history of, as you said, waterfall deliveries over time. And you're right, I think people um, give stuff like waterfall deliveries or hybrid approaches or wagile or whatever people want to call it. They, they give that a real hard time and said dirty words as opposed to... Um, actually it's just got to be the right methodology the right approach for the right thing and that that was a, a fair example yeah Let, let's not kill anyone on route so if you need to do a waterfall <laughs> let's let's roll with that well it, you know with a lot of these things i think it's really interesting to remove the digital element from it right so take it back to to real life right you look back at the 70s or 80s wasn't alive back then but whenever the decade was the flares like flares on jeans were a thing they okay. came they went and then everybody was there like, oh my God, they're horrible. We're not going to wear them. And guess what's happening today? 
people are wearing flares again. Same with the mullet. You can see it with loads of different trends that just repeat themselves. And I think it's exactly the same in products, maybe even worse, to be honest, and products and tech is that a trend comes along. We saw this. I remember seeing this back in the uh, back in my developer days when the document object sport store came along. So MongoDB, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, everyone's there like, why would you own an SQL database? Just do it in an object store. Then that happened. And it turns out, actually, it's not the right tool for the job in certain cases. There's certain cases where one methodology or process or whatever is great. There's other cases where the other is better. And it's really just being able to sit down and really critique what is it that we're looking to do? What's our objective? How do we think we're going to get there? And what tools do I need to unlock that path to that, to fulfilling that objective? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point. I think, um, you know, there can be a lot of examples that I've heard of, uh, you know, kind of over the years, or there are nervousness from clients where something is the buzzword, it's on every trend of 2024, every trend of 2019 list, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, everyone's using that brand new javascript framework that's got a ridiculous name or that testing tool or or this kind of methodology or, or whatever it may be and actually uh it can be a hype train i guess for for some as opposed to if you relate it you know not to kind of go all kind of simon sinek on this but if you relate it back to the why you know the what you're actually trying to achieve then that's probably the the most appropriate route regardless yeah and it's exactly the same, as I said, with, with features, right? The features are relevant, just, you know, it's just whether you get there or not. And um, you could come up with 50 different ideas, but it doesn't really matter, really. Just whatever's the most effective way to do what you're trying to do. Yeah, lovely. And I guess, you know, uh, part of this wasn't, you know, this this podcast isn't to just kind of celebrate how you kind of got to be so good at your job. Although obviously I'm happy for you that you're, you're extremely competent at it. You know, what we wanted to do was to, you know, explore some of those speed bumps that you can have en route, really. Those moments where it can feel like the whole plan could derail or it's teetering on the brink, uh, whatever it may be. And I know you've got a, you know, a really interesting story that I'd perhaps like to kind of start exploring what you've described as, you know, diverging from that kind of, atypical path what you've realized as a, a result of that as well yeah for sure so obviously as we mentioned near the start of the podcast i've recently taken the decision to leave my role at one up uh, which has been a difficult decision but it actually it's been coming about for a few years now something i've always wanted to do is go traveling uh, i've always just wanted to experience that and and the way i kind of phrase it is you know, I've spent five years now optimizing for one up. Now it's time for me to optimize for me. I actually listened to a an incredible podcast episode. I forget the name of the uh, the person who was on, but it was on Lenny's, Lenny's podcast, and it was from an author who had written a book called The Pathless Path. And it essentially just spoke around this principle of, you know, it was only really when you step back from what you have been doing and you really let go that actually you can see these other paths that are in front of you and actually there's quite a lot of joy in removing yourself from the standard path. Now by standard path, what do I mean by that? First of all, it changes based on your culture and geography. For example, the, the standard path in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia is very different to the standard path in the Western world. But if we look at the Western world, the standard path would look like going to school, going to university, getting a job, getting married, having kids, getting a house, et cetera, et cetera. Some people switch the order of those, but 
you know, it doesn't matter. Like that is the standard path. And that works for a lot of people. And I'm not here saying that anyone listening should quit their job, go traveling. Absolutely not. But if you've got an inkling inside, which is just like calling out to you and it's telling you to do something different, then I'd say that's maybe an indicator that there's something else out there for you. Now, for me, I knew that my time at One Up was coming to a draw. You know, I joined there when I w- there was five people. In fact, I was the fifth hire. You know, I've been there from doing a range of jobs, from going from developing to design to product owner to product manager at one point, doing all of those things together. And it's got to this point where really I've crafted this thing, which is starting to fly. I brought a team in. They're really starting to, you know, just get on with it and do what I would have done. They've got a decent amount of autonomy. And I'm just thinking, you know what? I could stay here. They've got some very, very uh, ambitious growth goals, which I'd love to get stuck into. But I think my time is done. And it's time for me to step back and think about what else could I do? And I think there's an element here of when you're so thick in the forest, you can't see the wood through the trees. And I've definitely dealt with that over the last couple of years. You know, I don't mind sharing that I've been at some of the lowest points mental health wise in the last couple of years, because building a startup is really, really fucking hard, like really, really hard. There's so many highs, but there's also so many lows. And I think something that isn't spoken about enough is that, you know, LinkedIn is basically the professional version of Instagram. You see people's, yeah, you you see people's, highest achievements you see all of these wonderful things that you're doing i've done it you know if you'd log back on in october you'd have seen about this amazing feature that we released and how well it went but what you didn't see was me not being able to get out of bed the week before so you only see this upper bit of the iceberg and not everything that goes on below it now whilst that isn't the sole reason that i've decided to leave one up it was a key indicator to me that i need to step back i need to figure out okay, what's going to give me energy from life and what's going to take it away? And I now need to optimize my path around that. And that's my strategy, which is why I'm ultimately taking that time to just explore. Incredible. And and firstly, look, thank you for being so honest and, and, you know, and kind of uh, refreshing in in, in kind of sharing that because I don't think that's, you know, talked about enough. I think, you know, again, uh, not talking just broadly as a society in general, I think things are getting better and there is much more acceptance that, mental health is just as important as physical health, but it's also probably a signifier, you know, if you are really experiencing those highest highs, those lowest lows, that someone really has skin in the game, they are passionate, they they really care, you know? Um, there are a lot of people, and nothing wrong with this because that's their path they're going on, but there can be a lot of people where it's it's a nine to five, it's paying the bills and it's, it's doing what they do and, and, and that's fine. But I think once you, if you immerse yourself in it, you feel everything a little bit more, you know, and, and those wins are amazing and those defeats, those losses, those, you know, kind of lows can can really hit hard. And again, I fully empathize, you know, when we, as a business, we set up, uh, what, Q3 of 2019, we set a recruitment business up six months before a global pandemic and a global hiring freeze. Like, can you imagine the, the regret that comes from that when you go, this was actually the worst time in recorded history that we yeah, could have gone about uh, <laughs> setting up a, a staffing business. But I, I think from that, you go one of two ways, don't you? And, and, and Dan and I took the decision to kind of really focus on, on just kind of building relationships and making sure that, you know, there is a, a karmic value to this, whereby, you know, 
you're good to people and those relationships will kind of blossom later on, even if right now, as you use the expression before, you can't see the wood from the trees because no one is hiring. It feels slightly immoral to start trying to have a sales call or meetings with clients when actually they're having to make the whole teams redundant, you know, due to a virus that no one knew even could be a thing and could take the, the you know, the, the kind of the movement of the planet down, you know, immediately. So, um, no, I completely empathize with, with that as well. And I guess, you know, quite a few people listening will, will be in product as part of a team with mentors, people they can lean on and, you know, have that kind of, oh, is this just a bad day at the end of a bad week type conversation or they can ask for help. You were the founding product manager in your business. I guess, was that a scary prospect for you with what I presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, would be no formal product management training? You've kind of fallen into that role. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like we said earlier, faking it until you make it, right? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, anyone who knows me, they will, they will be able to talk about how difficult it's been. Um, you know, th- there's that word, isn't there, imposter syndrome, but... You know, I experienced it on a <laughs> incredibly visceral level. Um, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy, especially when you've not got anybody to look to immediately who really just understands your pain. Um, and it is hard. The way that I got around it was really through, firstly, mentorship. Um, now, mentorship isn't, it, it, it's not the golden solution. It doesn't instantly fix all your problems. But what it does do is unlock a lot of experience you know you're talking to a mentor out there who's been in the game for 10 15 20 plus years you're getting access private access to all of those learnings their highs their lows how they dealt with it the whole reason that people listen to podcasts like this is so that they can lock those learnings and the best bit is is a lot of mentors will give it for free a lot of them are doing it because they want to give back that's why i do mentorship because I've benefited from it and now I want to give other people that experience back. So I'd say that's the main driver in me sort of like getting over that. But in addition, it's just sharing. Like don't ever be afraid to share. And if you're at a company where you don't feel like you can share, that you're having a tough time or that you don't think you're doing well enough or that you're failing in an area, if they don't accept that, then just get out of that company because it's not worth being in it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it, it sounds great that you, I guess, had that kind of leadership support and that ability to learn on the job to, you know, again, whatever buzzword you want to use, fail fast and you learn from the mistakes, well, you know, whatever it may be. And I guess, as we kind of mentioned before, you know, the need for great product management can be found in pretty much every industry and business size as well. Now, if you're a company, to use your example before of IBM, you, you made a really good point that actually sometimes they can be faster moving because they have what can feel to a startup infinite resource. You know, obviously it isn't, but it can feel like it compared to what you may have. And I guess, how have you been able to, you know, balance building a solid roadmap with the engineering resource that you've had when you, as I said, started, it was five people now, circa 40, if I'm right. And there are still businesses that 10, 20, 100 times that, you know, I guess. Yeah. How do you balance, you know, what is actually feasible with the, the engineering uh, kind of resource that you have? Yeah, no, great question. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring this back, actually, to talking about one up of my experience there. So obviously, you know, I, I remember hearing back through university 
you know, people would say, oh, working at a startup is hard. And that was commonly the phrase. You heard that a million times. And like you do when you're younger and, and you're at university or when you're a kid, you know, you hear it and you're just like, oh, yeah. And you don't really take it in. Um, it turns out that working at a hard up is like really, really fucking hard. Like I said earlier, it's, it's you can't, until you experience it, um, you can't really share that experience with anyone. They just need to go through it. Now, some people love that. Some people hate it. I I do love it. Whilst I definitely got burnt out from it, I do love the experience. Um, but it's, it's, it's challenging. And I think the reason why it's challenging, like you said, is because you're put into the, into this position where you're given these big goals and maybe you've got a vision, maybe you want to change the world in some way and you're trying to enact this change on the world. But actually, sometimes you've been paid very poorly, especially if the startup is in its early stages. You've got no financial security because you could be let go in the next month. And a lot of the times, you only have a couple of engineers to build it with. And that was very much my experience, especially earlier on in One Up, was you know, I was one of two engineers, product focused engineers. I was doing products. I was doing design. I was managing the backlog. Um, I was also doing an element of product management. And, you know, anyone who's done any one of those jobs will wonder how on earth do you mix those together? And in a way, that's kind of the crux of being the product person. You take on roles that actually other people can't do or the business doesn't want to employ to do. So you just end up being this jack of all trades, which ultimately is what leads to such severe burnout. But I think coming back to your original question, one of the things that we really didn't get right at One Up early on started actually before I was there. And that's not me saying that the problems were there. I inherited them. I've contributed a lot to some of the problems of One Up over the years. But they built, as startups do, a lot of stuff. And they threw it at the wall and they see what stuck. Now, to their credit, Quite a lot of it stuck and it ended up generating a lot of revenue. The problem was, was that the wall was filthy by this point. You know, there was so much stuff that it was just a nightmare. And you had loads of customers. All of them wanted each feature, but not loads of them wanted these features. Maybe have three or four customers out of like a couple of hundred that wanted this one feature. And taking that away from them felt, first of all, immoral in a way because they paid for it, but also just not a good customer service. So you keep it there. But the problem is when you keep it there and you've got two devs across all your products is all of a sudden you've not got enough people to support that. So now you're in this zone where you're trying to make decisions about what new things to build, but also what to keep running and where to make improvements. And it's just it's an impossible job. doesn't matter how smart you are, how talented you are. You have the same 24 hours as everyone else, I'm going to risk sounding like Molly May in a minute there, but you have the same <laughs> yeah, 24 hours. Yeah, different development. <laughs> and I'm not, obviously, I'm not going down the Molly May route, but she's you know, next week's guest, so we'll leave that to her. Oh, anyway. excellent. Excellent. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> she, you know, you know, I have exactly the same amount of time as someone else. And obviously, if you're really talented, you might be able to code a bit quicker, but it doesn't change those core um, parameters that are set out there. And ultimately, what I have come to realize is it all comes down to clear and coherent strategy. And that clear and coherent strategy really informs focus. And you'll hear this a lot in products. I'm definitely not um, the first person saying this, but that strategy allows you to know what to say yes and what to say no to. Now, I am five, no, four months, four years and maybe eight months into my product career. I would say, 
at the fourth year mark, I still did not understand strategy. And for anyone who's listening to this, don't be afraid if you don't understand it. Because strategy is this weird, ethereal word, um, which no one really understands what it means. And it's difficult to define. I think the better way to describe it, and I actually heard this on a podcast yesterday, I'm going to paraphrase, but I think it was like a prioritized agenda is a better version of a strategy. What is it that you want to do in your company? What is your mission? And that is crystal. And I can, I can talk more around that in a bit, but what is your mission? How do you think you're going to do that in a way which is competitively different to other players in the market? Great. So we've got essentially a strategy. You know, we're going to go out there and we're going to stand on the street and put signs up and we're going to advertise to people, come and download our product. That is a strategy, a marketing strategy, right? Once you've got that strategy, okay, well, what is it that we need to do? What are those tactics that we need to do? Now, all of a sudden, when I look back at my time at One Up, when we decided to rebuild our users page, when we decided to rebuild a page called The Matrix to add no value other than a nice new UI, you look at it on face value and whilst those things may have added value, it certainly did a lot for upgrading the look and feel of our platform. And that's one of the things that users really uh, remark us for in the market. It didn't actually add any more value. It didn't allow you know, people like yourself, Lee, to get any deeper analytics or visualize your data in a different way. Now, over the last year, we've really, really doubled down. I'd say double, tripled down, to be honest, on strategy and really trying to think about, okay, if we've got this vision to allow people to take control of performance, how are we getting there? And what does that road look like? And now this year, we've come into 2024, being able to say, you know what? We know all of these things are important but we're not working on them and we're being resolute in that decision. So what we've gained is really clear, uh, clear focus, which will allow us to channel all of our efforts. And actually, if that means getting rid of some stuff, so be it, because you've got a vision and you're going in the direction you're going. The market will ultimately tell you if that's the right decision or not, but you've got to have that focus. Otherwise, you just spread yourself way too thin. No, really, a range of really good points there. I guess, you know, just as a, a follow-up to that, and this might be a how long is a piece of string question, but if something feels like it isn't working, a feature, a product, a, you know, the, the, the next uh, kind of item on your prioritised agenda, um, how do you think is best to judge whether to keep with it or call it a day and focus attention elsewhere? Like... Are there any, you know, kind of pivotal things that, you know, perhaps you can point to? And it might not be, you know, for every business or, or every setup, but when you've kind of said, actually, do you know what? I think we're putting too much effort on this. And it's, as you said, it's just not going to deliver the value that actually the customers perhaps need. Yeah, I mean, I think the first step towards this is it starts with, starts with a really good understanding of how we go from mission down to the execution layer. And the way I like to think about it is a little bit like a waterfall, right? So you've got a waterfall and let's just imagine it's not just a straight waterfall. It's got kind of like multiple layers that go down. Now with that waterfall, you've got at the very top, you've got your mission. The next step down from that, you've got your strategy. The next step down from that, you've got your tactics and so on and so forth. You can insert a load of random words that it doesn't really matter. But the point of the waterfall analogy from my perspective is if you cut off that top layer, if you don't allow water, if you build a dam at the top, then all of a sudden that water stops flowing down. And then all of a sudden at those stages, 
people have just lost direction and they're just randomly grappling for, okay, well, what should we do? Let's just do something. Let's just flow in some way, right? It's a bit of a weird analogy, but we're going to go with it. Yeah. Um, when it when it comes to your question around sort of like understanding, are we are we moving in the right direction? And I guess the second part of that is, are we moving in the right direction enough to warrant the investment? Is first of all, make sure that you can track and understand if you're generating value. Because the amount of times in my career, but I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with this, that you start out on something, whether it be a feature or, you know, an initiative or whatever it might be, you start out on it and you forget to put the basics in place to understand if you're moving forwards. So then it just becomes this finger in the wind. Do we feel like it's working? The problem with feeling is it's very subject to people's own agendas. For example, in the past, I have built stuff because it validates me, because it's something that I think is cool and that I want to work on. I'm irrelevant. All that's relevant is whether we're adding value. Now, looking back, I used that example of the matrix earlier. For people who don't know one, just imagine it as an Excel table. Right. Let's just say it's that. If I were looking back at that and I was doing the rebuild, I would now look at it and say, well, okay, if we're going to rebuild that, what is it that we're optimizing for? What do we want to achieve with that? Is it a layer deeper of understanding, et cetera, et cetera. But don't just stop there because you might have your your, your metric, which is saying, well, if, if 80% of people use this, it means it's value. But don't just stop there. Try and go back up the waterfall. Okay, well, how does this relate to our strategy? Does it? If it doesn't, do we need to update our strategy? Okay, well, does that strategy then relate to the overall mission and work that back up? If you can track it quantitatively along the way, amazing. If you can't, that doesn't matter. All that matters is, is that you've actually done the steps. You've done the steps to actually talk it through and say, right, well, we're doing this. This is how we're going to assume this is successful. And then this is how we're going to connect it to the overall vision. Um, Gibson Biddle from Netflix, he used to be the CPO of Netflix, actually did a really interesting blog post on this. But in there, they talk about proxy metrics. And it's when okay. you don't know, that you can measure something or when you don't know that something leads to something else. A great example being back in the day when Netflix pivoted from their DVD rental um, and moved over to streaming. They didn't know whether that was going to keep customers retaining. And that is one of their top level objectives as a business. More customers that retain more money. They didn't know whether that streaming was uh, whether that streaming service was going to work. But what they did know was that they could put metrics in place such as the percentage of people that watch at least one hour of Netflix a day. I think it was either a day or a week, but you get the idea. Yeah. That was their understanding of, is this successful? Now, they couldn't relate it to retention initially. So they said, you know what, fine, because tracking something is better than tracking nothing. So they optimized around that. I think it was three years later that they proved that more people who watched an hour a day actually retained at a higher rate. So they validated that connection eventually, but they didn't know it initially. So what I would say is just have a very fine finger on the pulse. Always be checking to see if we're quantitatively moving towards where we want to get to. And then just be willing to adapt. If something doesn't work, it's not the end of the day. Maybe there's optimization, you know, maybe you can do more rounds of iteration. But, you know, if you're on your third, fourth, fifth round of iteration and you're seeing absolutely nothing uh, in the right direction, then chances are, EV solutions wrong or the problem just doesn't exist. You just invented the problem. Now, I guess lots of people 
can build a roadmap of features, you know, go back to what we said before, that they'd like to provide to their customers. But how do you make sure that it stays true to your kind of business's mission statement? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to mission, the first thing to do is really understand what is a mission. And I think there's so much, there's so much fluff out there around mission. You know, you go online and you Google how to make a perfect mission, they'll hyper-focus on the sentence structure, the words to use, making it engaging, all of that. And and truthfully, it doesn't matter. That's what I've learned. And I fell into that trap many, many times over, trying to make this perfectly crafted sentence. And actually, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. The only point of a mission is it just needs to give you some direction. And that really needs to be founded on a critical plane that somebody experiences in the world. You know, if your mission is to do something that no one cares about, then have fun on your mission, but no one's going to buy it, right? So as long as your mission solves a critical problem that somebody's willing to part cash with, and you think that it's feasible to do economically and, and technically, then that's, you know, that is your mission. Even actually on the technical, technically point, it doesn't actually have to be technically possible at all because it could span beyond what is possible now. But as long as you've got something that's aspirational, um, doesn't need to be perfectly written and at least gives people direction as to where you're going, then I think that's a perfect mission. If you can make it sound inspiring and everything else, great, then you get top marks. But I don't think it needs to be that by its nature. So if we look at one up and I reflect on my four years of being there, we didn't really have a mission for a lot of that time. Realistically, what we wanted to do was grow. And that's why most of the time when we were talking about what is our mission, it was, well, we want to get to 10 mil ARR. And it was there like, well, that's cool, but ultimately that's not a mission, it's an ambition. And I think really that lack of mission, it was felt across the whole company, but especially in product. So for me, as a sole, uh, you know, sort of like founding PM, my job was to drive us forwards. But, you know, Lee, if I said to you, okay, I want you to plan how you're going to get somewhere. Your first question would be, okay, well, that's cool. I can do that where are you going to? And I'm going to say to you, well, actually, I don't know. I just need you to figure that out. How are you going to do that? How are you going to plan what transport, what you're going to need to take? Do you need hot or cold clothes? You don't know that. So without a mission, you literally can't do the job of driving forwards. And this is why, you know, if you let go of all of the fluff and all of the mission statements and all of that, frankly, bollocks that sits around it, and you actually lean into why do we need a mission? It's so that you can unite people under that path, under that sort of purpose that you're trying to strive towards. And what you'll actually find along the way is not only do you do better for your company, but you give people a self of, uh, a sense of fulfillment. You yeah. really allow people to unite with that mission and have a reason to get out of bed. Because I'm not going to lie, you know, getting paid is great. Love getting paid. Absolutely. Hanging out with friends is great. I've got a lot of things in my life that I love doing and work enables me to do that. But and this is not the same for everyone, but research has shown that for a lot of people, fulfillment is a massive thing that they need in their life. Some people get it from their family. Some people get it from their friends, but a lot of people get it from work. It's what you spend most of your life doing. So why wouldn't you want to be fulfilled? And ultimately, it's not just for the individual, because studies have shown that fulfillment not only leads to better retention of staff, but it also leads to better performance overall. So for me personally, it feels like a thing that you really need to sit down and in a way obsess over. And when I say obsess, you know, don't sit in a room for a year and don't and not build any products and just focus on mission. There's a balance as with all things here. 
But don't just fob it off as a, a half an hour exercise in an afternoon where you sit down, people shout out some cringy random statements like, I can't even think of one off the top of my head, but, you know, synergy over everything else or something like that. Don't just sit yeah. there and shout out some random statement. Like, really dial it back to who are our customer, what is their critical pain that they're willing to pay for, and how are we going to change their lives? And that's what your mission should be. And I really think the effects will will really spread through the company over time. And that's what I've seen at One Up. We've now got a mission, and I think everybody across the board is united on where we're going. And it's, you know, the progress over 2023 alone has, has really shown what that can do. That's amazing. I know there'll be lots of people listening as well. And, you know, perhaps kind of business leaders or product leaders, technology leaders that don't quite have that yet. And I guess if you don't quite have it yet, it actually doesn't necessarily mean that you're failing. It just means you're still, you know, you're still going down the path. You're still en route to it. But keep in mind what the end goal is there. And I think that's a great tagline that you've got there of not confusing mission with ambition and not only because it's catchy and it rhymes, but because it really makes sense and is, is very relatable there. Um, Alex, I, I think a lot of the things you've said will have really resonated with obviously people listening, but also, also myself as well, you know, um, because I think you can sometimes take product out of this and it's just, it's, business, it's commerce, and it's actually, it, it spans across uh, discipline, doesn't it? Whether you're in a technical role, a non-technical role, a sales role, whether you're talking, you know, broadly about life and actually what you want to achieve and, and all those things. And I think, um, you know, it's been, it's been incredibly interesting. To, to summarize, Alex, you know, this has been a, a really interesting discussion. We've gone on a few different routes to, to get there, but that's the, the joy of some of these conversations. Obviously, when we talk about providing value, the biggest value we want to provide today to listeners are takeaways from you, your experience, and you know, you navigating some of those setbacks or hurdles on route. For for our listeners, you know, what are the three kind of key takeaways that, that you would give today? Yeah, so I'll tell you the three and I'll go into more detail. So I think first of all, everybody fucks up at some point. Second, lean into what gives you energy, pull back from what zaps it. And then third is what I spoke around mentorship, invest in a great mentor early on. So with the first point about everybody fucking up, I don't actually want to phrase that as a singular. Everybody is continuously doing that throughout their career. And that is how you learn again and again and again. It doesn't matter where you went to school, doesn't matter how many logos you have on your CV, how many achievements you've had, everybody makes mistakes what separates the good from the great is how people really rally around those mistakes and again like i said earlier view those mistakes as an opportunity for growth not as a detriment to yourself i will say for listeners i've been in both camps and i think when you look at fixed versus growth mindset i don't know if you know anything about it Lee, or, or any of the listeners people think again you're one or the other and it's, it's not true you can be both and you can flip between depending on you know, what month it is, depending on how you're feeling on that day. And I've been in both camps, but you've got to really just try and look at these thoughts that come in around the imposter syndrome, step back from them, and then use empirical evidence to analyze them. You know, is that true? What do I have to support that? How could I, you know, do something differently there in my future? So everybody makes mistakes. The way in which I've tried to overcome this in terms of growing from them it's just around one degree changes. And again, I'm not the person to, to come up with that theory. Someone very smart came up with it. But 
yeah, one degree changes. Don't try and change everything overnight. I've been very guilty of that in the past. Just try and do little bits here and there, but think through those little things that you're going to change. Be intentional with them, implement them, and in a uh, classic product style, measure the impact of them. Maybe it can't always be a quantitative measure, but even if it's a new process that you implement, go and get some feedback from the team. See what they thought of it. Did it make things easier? So in regards to leaning into energy and pulling back from what zaps it, um, this is a phrase I've actually been using a lot recently. It's very pertinent to my current, uh, you know, sort of like goals of, of going traveling and stuff. And I like to phrase this around conceptualizing your career or, or visualizing your career. I think a lot of people, when you sit down with them and you say, what's your five year plan? That's actually one of my least favorite questions. I hate that question. But what's your five year plan or you know, what job title do you want to get to? Where do you want to go? Few people have an idea. If you're lucky enough maybe to be a doctor, then you can say, well, I want to be a consultant. It's a very defined path. But for a lot of people, they don't know. And actually, the main reason, in my opinion, why a lot of people end up unhappy in their roles is because actually they put a lot of their self-worth into this egotistical ambition for a, a job title. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. Like being a head of product is great. But it doesn't help me when I'm having a bad day. I don't sit there and think, oh, it's fine. I've got not got any issues because I'm ahead of product. It doesn't change it at all. So actually, something that I'm going to be focusing on a lot over the next year is being really conscious, really conscious. When I do something and I feel the energy, and you'll know exactly what it feels like when you know, you've done something and you almost like want to shake because you feel so good versus doing something where you just walk away feeling drained and tired separate those into two camps, note them down. And actually what you'll start to see is a, a side of this is my job. This is what I love to do. And a side of this is actually what I'm not very good at. And you can choose to discard that part of things and you can choose to lean more in to those things that you really like. Now, obviously, there's always going to be parts of a job that you don't like. Again, balance comes into this. You've got to accept that sometimes you are going to have to do something like do a spreadsheet or make a presentation. I actually love making presentations, but a lot of people don't. So there each, are areas that each to their own. I'm, I'm a designer at heart. What can I say? I'm nice, very, yeah. very anal with my presentations. It's uh, become a bit of a running joke or whatever. Um, but yeah, so lean in, pull back from what's absent. And on the final point there around investing in a great mentor, it's really just to, to say what I said earlier, to be honest. Um, really be intentional about looking for a mentor a golden piece of advice that i've heard of before and it's it's resonated with me quite a lot is seek a mentor that is at least as intelligent or more intelligent than you and that sounds weird it sounds like a bit weird to say but i honestly think it makes such a profound difference because and maybe it's not maybe not even intelligence because i don't think that necessarily matters but you've got to have a mentor that you respect if you don't have a mentor you respect um, and I've actually had counsellors in the past. I'm not, I'm not shitting on any of my mentors here, but I've actually had counsellors in the past and I've not respected them. So when they give me advice, I'm just like, well, you know, frankly, like I don't really respect the advice you're giving me. So you've got to find someone that aligns to, you know, your values, that understands you, that has a stake in the ground for you and helping you grow. Um, and that ultimately yeah, you look up to and want to get advice from. No, that's, that's brilliant. And again, relatable content, you know, for whether we're talking about technology, product, and as I said, it can happen all the time. It could be a personal trainer that you don't quite 
believe everything they're saying or it just doesn't gel. And I think that um, kind of mutual respect and rapport is going to be crucial in those things. If you're obviously going to take on board advice, lessons, whatever it may be. Um, Thank you so much for providing those those kind of key takeaways. Uh, I think that's going to be uh, supremely relevant and uh, supremely useful for kind of everyone, everyone listening today. So we've we've had a quite a long detailed conversation right but we've been working up to the bit that really we're all here for right to see <laughs> what your reactions are like um so um as uh, people may or, or may not know we have a game that we're going to be doing we're going to be asking each of our guests to take part in um to drive a little bit of competitive edge right you know you do a platform to incentivize sales people we are doing a um, uh, podcast ultimately with the uh, the goal of seeing who is best out of our guests at uh, a very contrived outside of the, the kind of box game. So um, we have a reaction test here. Um, so you'll be given 30 seconds um, and essentially you've got to catch the, uh, the dot, the head on our Innova logo. Um, so if you do want to uh, click start whenever you're ready, uh, you'll notice it start to move around and we'll see how you get on. Nice. Uh, a lot of the uh, people from my company have games backgrounds, so this could either go <laughs> really well or really bad. So Perfect. I hope I do them proud. <laughs> well, they'll be able to try it soon as well. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely be Alex. Cool. Shall I uh, click start? Yeah, go for it. Let's go. Right. I don't really know what to expect. So I'm trying to grab the eye. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It'll just be a dot. But it will get uh, faster and faster (laughs) as it goes. I can tell you now, anyone doing this with a mouse, I've got a trackpad. That's my excuse. I'm just getting that in there. Yeah, get it, get it straight away. Well, we're not bad. We're already on seven, eight. We've got 12 seconds left. So we're going to get into double figures, it looks like. I don't know. Oh, You've oh, just... Oh. Uh... <laughs> slow down. I shouldn't have said it out loud. We're on nine with three seconds. Are we going to get to double figures? Where? There we go. There we go. So we've got to click that was every... surprisingly hard. <laughs> we've got to click every three seconds there. Um, yeah. Perfect. So that's a, a score of 10 on the, the leaderboard. And as I said, all the guests will be put on a leaderboard, but this will also be available for anyone to have a go uh, as well, uh, who just wants to see if they uh, they can beat 10. And if you can do it with a trackpad as well and beat 10, I guess that's the ultimate. Uh, I like that. Can... That has to be the requirements now. You need to have a trackpad. But no matter what happens, I've always been top of the leaderboard. I'll always be able to say that I've been top of the leaderboard as I'm episode one. Absolutely. We'll take the screenshot of it. So uh, <laughs> we don't need to know it was the first. It'd be fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> Alex, I um, want to just take again this opportunity to thank you so much for agreeing to be part of today. I'm confident that everyone consuming this podcast um, in whatever form and whatever kind of provider will have learned plenty. I know I certainly have. Um, we wish you all the best on your travels. Uh, I would recommend that anyone who has found Alex Wiley as interesting as I have should uh, connect with you on LinkedIn if that's all right. And I guess depending on yeah. Southeast Asia's Wi-Fi connection, I'm sure you'll be happy to uh, kind of speak with them or, or maybe when you get back. Um, and it'd be great to see 
guess what that next step of the the career is and and, and where the, uh, the the your product path's going to take you yeah hopefully i'll be back on in the future and for anyone who wants to just chat about their experiences or anything in between uh, just give me a shout on linkedin always happy to talk to other product people Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll call it a day on uh, today's In Over Our Heads podcast. Thank you for listening to In Over Our Heads, brought to you by Innova Recruitment. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For further details on Innova and how we can assist you in building world-class tech teams, head over to innova-rec.com and see you next time.